At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, the big warning. The woman with a front row seat to the last financial crisis says another one could be brewing. My former FDIC chair Sheila Baer is sounding the alarm. She'll join us exclusively. Plus, mall madness. Macy's on the move as an activist takes aim. Could this spark the ultimate turnaround story in retail? And later, our move of the day, Walgreens rallying 8% on the back of earnings, how our traders are playing this pop. We start off with a major market rally on Wall Street, the S&P locking in its best day since March. The Dow snapping a four-day losing streak with a 530-point gain. The Nasdaq jumping 1.7%. Just take a look at some of the high flyers leading the charge. Chip stocks, Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation ETF, Biotech, the IGV Software ETF, all outperforming the broader market. And the move comes as rates continue to move lower. The yield on 10-year Treasury is dropping for a third straight day. So with the rates coming down from four-month highs and markets 2% away from records at this point, is this a green light for stocks? And is it okay to be in the higher valuation parts of the market? Guy Dami, what do you say? It's fascinating. I think the market's saying, you know what, last time rates moved uh, lower from that 175 level, maybe we missed the move higher in some of these high valuation stocks. So I think the market in this case is effectively shooting first in the form of buying these names and asking questions later. I happen to think it's a mistake. I do think yields are going higher, but I understand the thought behind this. And Tim and Dan talk about this all the time. Taiwan Semi is probably the most important stock that we don't talk about often enough. And maybe the market's taking its cues from that as well, a stock that's effectively gone nowhere now since the spring of this year. Uh, again, I think rates higher, but this move from 163 down to 151 has taken place in a short period of time. I think the calculus is, you know what, that jobs number wasn't great. CPI wasn't as hot as everybody made it out to be. Uh, PPI may be the same. And I think the market's just trying to get ahead of something they think is coming. I just think it's misguided. Yeah, Dan, you, you've been saying to watch TSM. I'm wondering what you think about this move, particularly in the, in the higher beta areas of the market. Yeah, so there's two things, right? We keep talking about these bottlenecks as far as supply chains are concerned, and then some of the weird supply-demand dynamics going on. And one thing that we've known for the last 18 months, no matter what the headlines were during the pandemic, is that there's actually always been a lot of demand for chips because of their going into all these different places now. So the demand's going to be there. Um, you know, I think for Taiwan Semi in particular, given the results that they had, the fact that the stock didn't act better. Maybe that's a slight bit of concern on a day where the you know the Nasdaq is up 1.7 percent. We have Taiwan Semi up two and a half percent, but at least it didn't fall apart. You know, you could go and look at J.P. Morgan yesterday that had re good results and didn't trade particularly well. It's actually below levels of where it was earlier in the week. So I think that this is going to be a cyclical sort of play. I think people are going to be very comfortable with the valuation of Taiwan Semi and the fact that. Once demand and supply meet up, these guys are going to be humming in 2022. 
So can we separate out semiconductors versus some of the other higher valuation sectors of the market, Karen? I'm wondering if, if you can regard semiconductors as very cyclical, which they are, and then separate them from software and say semis mm-hmm. deserve to go higher because there is actually demand with a, uh, an economy that is picking up. But some other areas of the market, like an area that you have been short in the past, IGV, maybe they deserve to be taken down mm-hmm. as rates go higher. Right, which I'm still short, by the way. I mm-hmm. think... You know, to Dan's point about this is sort of a, you know, we talk about semis as, cic- as cyclical, but this is a secular move as well as semiconductors become more ubiquitous in, in so many products that never used them before, you know, and how much they're used in an auto now versus, you know, 10 years, 15 years ago. So that's very relevant. To me, the other thing about some of the super high flyers is a lot of them were particularly benefited by the pandemic. And so to the extent that we start to come out of that, and if the economy improves, I think rates will go higher. And I think that, you know, the whole reason for being in that trade, I think, still exists. So that's why I'm long some of the other fangs that I think of as much lower valuation. Um, but one thing that is just interesting, though, going into earnings season, which is just starting to get kicked off, is what do what is baked in already in terms of companies missing on supply chain issues? Mm-hmm. Is there a free pass for this past quarter or Christmas? Or are we going to see them get hit again and again and again on the same news? I don't know. So that'll be interesting to watch. And that's exactly what we talked about last night. We, we talked about the season of excuses. I mean, if you're a company, this is your time to say it's a supply chain issue. It's a labor shortage. It's whatever it is. What, and it could very well be a valid excuse, a valid reason for not taking estimates higher or not making estimates for the quarter. Tim. But in terms of what we're seeing here in the markets today, we keep saying if rates go higher, if rates go higher. And here we are at one five and change (laughs) and rates aren't going higher and they haven't gone much higher than one seven eight, which we haven't seen for months and months and months. So is this sort of a trader's dream when it comes to these higher valuation stocks? You trade the range in in the Treasury yield. When you start inching higher, you don't want to be in them. When they're lower, you, you get in them. Well, by the way, in, in terms of the, the excuses of the season, it, it's a present giver's dream, too. So I can definitely show up <laughs> Christmas Day with, with out all the things that were, were promised and, and blame it on something. I, I think we're making a much bigger deal out of rates right now um, because I, I don't think that the, these moves here, which, you know, yeah, great. We're, we're back 12 bips off the, the intraday high. We've been inching higher. Um, as I've said all along, I, I uh, definitely not want to be at 75 basis points uh, over 175 on the 10 year. So I think there's just a lot going on here. You talked about cyclicality with semiconductors. I, I think there's something going on here that uh, semis are much less cyclical than they used to be. There, this isn't, it, it, I mean, think of the parts of the semiconductor world also that are now considered more staples and the parts of the semiconductor world and, and the chips world more, more broadly. Um, think of the autos, think of uh, the, uh, all the other places where uh, in graphics and gaming, I mean, you know, chips are part of every single industry. Um, I don't think it's as cyclical as it used to be. I, I also love the fact that the, the SMH, the semiconductor ETF, um, has retaken not only that, that 200, but is challenging above the 100. So that chart is really what I think markets need to see. But I don't think that they have to necessarily be leading in the same way. I think the, the, the market over the last couple of days to me is about earnings. It is about better earnings. It is about companies, uh, uh, I think, that are delivering at least uh, the ones we've heard of so far and the expectations into this earnings season because of all the things that give people excuses at Christmas, I think they're flagged. 
All right. So Tim and Karen are making the point, Guy, that semiconductors um, are more secular. They're a bigger part of the economy. They're, they're ever present. And so therefore, should their valuations be less cyclical? Should it be more accepted as where they are? They're not necessarily higher valuation because they're a more secular kind of story. Is it more defensible? I believe I, I believe so. And we've, listen, we've had that conversation in different forms over the last couple of years, quite frankly. And the names we continue to point to along those lines are AMD, which obviously is a pretty high valuation, but you can justify it with some of the growth that they're in and the fact that they're probably not cyclical. And NVIDIA, the flip side of that coin, to a large extent, has been a name like Micron, which proves over and over again that as much as you want to make it a secular story, it continues to be a commodity a cyclical story in the, in the form of commoditization and pricing. So it's interesting. I, 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 I totally get what Tim and Karen are saying to a certain extent, Dan, and I think those names will continue to acquit themselves extraordinarily well. And I think if you're looking for proof positive, again, just look at the divergence between the three names that I just mentioned. All right, let's take a look at the technicals behind today's big rip higher with the chart master, Carter Worth of Worth Charting, joined us now. So, Carter, what are the charts telling you right now? Yeah, hi, team. Um, so before we look at them, what's so fascinating is that every once in a while, or actually more than that, a level takes on a great deal of importance, meaning where the market went to today and where it closed. We know it's not a P.E. matter. We know it's not a dividend uh, matter. We know it's enterprise value, EBITDA matter, price sales. Often is just technical. Let's look at three charts. They are exactly the same time frame and I make a point that I think it matters for all of us. The first chart you're looking at is there was an unfilled gap left from two weeks ago at the 4436.19 level. And today we filled that gap and closed just a little bit above at 4438. Now look at the second chart, exact same time frame. The downtrend line in effect since the peak on September 2nd essentially also comes into play right at 443536. Look at the third chart, the 50-day moving average, excuse me, the shorter-term uh, smoothing mechanism comes into play at 4436.15. So the unfilled gap was 4436.19, 50-day 4436.15, and the trend line. Now, that's not random, right? And again, it's not a valuation. It's nothing to do with CPI or GDP. The market filled the gap, went to the downtrend line, and now the question is, is it able to push on? What we do have, prospectively, is a little minor head and shoulders bottom. I think the September highs are not going to be easily exceeded. Wow. So we might have seen the best for the rest of the year. Carter, good to see you. Thank you so much. Carter Worth of Worth Charting. Dan, you agree? Well, first of all, Carter redefines to the penny right in front of us at 4036.19. Um, that's pretty specific here. And it might not be random. I mean, the thing is, it's like if the market was still open right now, I think it'd still be raging higher, Mel. It feels like that was the sort of reversal day that a lot of the bulls really needed to feel like, you know, look, look, here's an example. Microsoft is less than 1% from its all-time highs. You know, we're talking about a lot of constructive charts. If we're saying that a lot of the news is kind of discounted in the last month or five weeks price action, then it really kind of leaves you to be less bearish if you were bearish, let's say, two weeks ago, because if we're going to digest 
fundamental news better and the charts look constructive, um, that's kind of how I feel about it. I'm not telling you I'm playing for new highs in the market. I'd like him to be right. And we also know during earnings season, the tide can change very quickly. You know, we talked about banks for the last week and a half. There was a lot of seesaw action here. Yesterday, they looked really bad. Today, they look really good. Tomorrow, they might look really bad again. So um, to me, I think you got to wait a couple weeks into earnings season before a trend is made. I mean, we talk about the setup. We talk about, you know, the run in something going into earnings season. The S&P 500, 2% off of highs, Guy. That seems like a setup that stinks going into earnings season. You would think, but it's proven me wrong over and over again. We played Choose Your Own Odyssey a few weeks ago. I think we had like 19 different odysseys we could choose from, and I forget which one I chose. But I'll tell you the one that I chose was I thought we'd trade down to 4,100 in the S&P and then close the year higher than um, the all-time high that we made earlier this year. I'll sort of stand by that, although it's really I'm hard-pressed to sort of back that up given today's action. But I still think we're in for one whoosh to the downside, to your point about the setup in earnings. And, oh, by the way, if it was a little colder out, I could absolutely sit by a fire and listen to Carter Worth read just about any novel that he wants to pull out of his library because he is just poetic, amazing. Poetic and also the dulcet tones of his voice help also. All right, we're following a developing story out of Moderna shares rallying today and some big booster news. Let's get to Meg Terrell, who's got the details. Meg. Hey, Melissa, a panel of outside advisors to the FDA voting today unanimously to recommend booster shots for people who got the Moderna vaccine and are at least six months out. Now, the vote they took was specifically on the same groups who were authorized for a Pfizer booster. That's people who are over 65 and those between the ages of 18 and 64 who are either at increased risk because of underlying health conditions or because of their job or institutional uh, setting. And so there was discussion today of whether the boosters should be expanded to everybody over age 18, at least for Pfizer and Moderna. And the committee really was not on board with that right now, essentially saying that the benefit risk didn't make sense for all younger, healthy people at this moment. There was some discussion from a CDC representative about whether the age should be lowered to 50, potentially. And that's something that will be in ongoing discussions. But right now, this really setting the stage for the FDA to clear this for folks who got Moderna. And then next week, the CDC to talk about it. And then this actually becoming available, probably at the end of next week. Same process is going to take place for Johnson & Johnson tomorrow. That might be a little bit more complicated because it's a different kind of vaccine in just one dose, and the data look different. And interestingly, Mel, we're also going to hear from the NIH tomorrow on mixing and matching boosters, and that is a key commercial question for all of these vaccine makers as the next stage of this, really, as we get out of the pandemic, is going to be competing to be the booster of choice. And that's when you see companies like Novavax potentially even playing a role there and moving on some of the NIH data that we saw yesterday. So uh, this will continue to be really interesting. Moderna, though, popping on this uh, vote. Mel? So, so, Meg, does this open the possibility, I mean, the, the idea of mixing and matching boosters, that even another vaccine maker that's not Pfizer or, or Moderna could come in with the booster of choice, ultimately? So the NIH data we saw so far were just for the three available vaccines. But essentially, it is the first step in saying, hey, it might make sense to switch up the type of vaccine you get. And so whenever Novavax becomes available or Sanofi and GSK, which also have a protein-based vaccine, uh, they could be competing in the next rounds. If we have to get COVID vaccines seasonally like we do for flu, it may not be limited to just these three companies. All right. Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell with the latest on Moderna. Um, we had mentioned biotech at the top. It was a smaller cap 
um, more sort of beta biotech names that, that saw the biggest bids today, Tim. But I'm wondering if you think this is sort of a game changer for, for Moderna, which um, actually got the biggest pop today. Yeah, and, and if Carter was here with his dulcetones, he would have said to the penny at $300, which was an important level for this stock. And, and I, I look, it's fascinating. We, we saw this uh, all the way through the early stages of when we were starting to get a glimpse of who was leading the race on a vaccine and, and where we were getting uh, in terms of then the follow-up, who would be the standard, what would be the number of follow-up boosters. And, 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 and look, I, I don't think we really know in terms of how the prices of these stocks are going to trade because we still don't really understand... Uh, Um, where they will be priced, um, where the competitive landscape will be. And as we said, uh, just Meg has pointed out, there's a chance you could actually have somebody come in and and really be uh, the kingmaker in terms of either who they are partnering with or where there is efficacy. So um, I I just think that in the case of a Moderna, you have a valuation that's very, very difficult, despite a company that's proven it's not necessarily just a one-trick pony, although that's what's taken them here. So um, I, I would be fading this strength in Moderna because I think there's going to be a lot of news for all of these companies. And ultimately, that is strength to be faded on vaccines. Yeah. Guy, your thoughts on that? Karen was way ahead of this. I mean, I think it goes back to the fall of last year when she was pointing out that the winner here was not going to be Pfizer in terms of the stock, <laughs> but Moderna. And she was spot on. I mean, it's, that stock has probably gone up fourfold since, whereas Pfizer's gone up, you know, percentage points. What are my thoughts? Well, when that downgrade happened, I think it was in August, maybe September, you recall, we actually talked about it on the show. I think $115 price target in Moderna. And I think collectively we said, you know, I don't know if you see 115 but you could definitely see 325 Tim just pointed out we overshot that. But I think you have something to trade against now in the form of that recent low. And I actually hear what Tim is saying in terms of fading it. That's probably the right way to trade it. I think you can continue to buy strength here. I do think this stock has one more run to the upside. All right, we've got an uh, after-hours alert on Virgin Galactic. Shares are sinking after the close. Christina Partsnevelis joins us now with the news driving the action. Christina. Well, Virgin Galactic has hit a snag with its spaceflight. The company announcing the beginning of its commercial space tourism service will be pushed out to the fourth quarter of 2022. Shares of Virgin Galactic right now are dropping about 12%. Virgin Galactic has currently entered what they call an enhancement period, so they're testing the vehicle performance and checking the strength of materials. But one of their recent lab tests flagged a, quote, possible drop in strength of certain materials used to modify specific joints. Virgin Galactic says they will now have to do further physical inspections. And once they finish all of those tests and inspections, Virgin Galactic then intends to complete the testing program for VMS Eve, as well as VSS Unity, as well as the planned test flight with the Italian Air Force. And it looks... Like you'll have to wait a little bit longer to book that Virgin Galactic space flight. Oh, the disappointment on this panel, Christina. I you know. can feel it. Thank I you. know. <laughs> Thank you. Christina Partsnevelis. Dan, I feel like you would sign up for a Virgin flight, but I want, I mean, this is a, this is yeah. basically a delay to their, their core business. Who cares? Uh, who cares? <laughs> What's the TAM? What's the t- I mean, listen, this is exactly what you'd want this company to do. Let's make sure that when we send these things up, that they come back with the people here. So pushing something out a quarter or two doesn't really matter when you think about this company. Listen, I know this is a very controversial stock and people think that there's other space companies that are more interesting in this than whatever, but wouldn't you want this sort of competition to make sure all of these people who are focused on going to space or bringing people to space or bringing satellites to space are doing it in a very safe manner? So to me, you know, it seems like a bit of an overreaction. I don't own the stock. I find it to be a very interesting story. I think 10 years from now, Fast Money or Space Money or whatever they call (laughs) 
call it then, there's going to be a lot of space stocks. It might be like, you know, the EV stocks now. So the idea of, again, pushing it out three or six months, who cares? All right. Coming up, former FDIC chair Sheila Baer sounding the alarm. She's worried that another financial crisis could be in the cards. She'll tell us why straight ahead. Plus, the ultimate comeback story in retail. Macy shares now a double on the year as an activist investor steps in. They say this stock could double again if Macy's does just one thing. We'll tell you what that is. We're live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. Fast Money's back right after this. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back. Shares of Southwest Gas rallying today. Activist investor Carl Icahn says he plans to start a tender offer for shares at $75 a piece. He also plans to launch a proxy battle to replace the company's board. This all comes just days after Southwest adopted a new shareholder rights plan to thwart Icahn's push for Southwest to abandon its $2 billion deal to buy Questar pipelines. Karen, you flagged this. Your old friend Carl is back at it. He's back at it. I mean, look at him. I mean, it was classic Carl just, you know, mm-hmm. coming out guns blazing. He had a letter that had a few pokes at the CEO. He said, you know, I tried, your, tried to call you. Your secretary said you were out to lunch. Yes, I think so. Something to that effect. <laughs> and, you know, about he doesn't like this Questar deal. He doesn't like that they're issuing equity at a bad price. He wants to do he wants them to do it via a rights offering, which allows all current shareholders to buy stock if he thinks he's, they're selling it too cheaply. And um, so, you know, ready to replace the board and put a $75 tender offer out there. That's pretty aggressive. The one thing that's really interesting to me is he didn't put out a 13D, which I think means mm-hmm. he's still out there buying stock. So if he's oh. willing to pay 75 for all the stock. He may be out there buying stock here right now. I don't know. We'll see. At some point, we're going to have to see a 13D from him, I assume. Otherwise, why do all this? Right. So that'll be interesting. I think, But it's classic, Carl. It's... I mean, he's still at it. Good for him. Back to his that, roots in the energy space. That, that is a true fine print uh, in terms of the 13D guy. I mean, the notion that he's still out there buying stock, that's, that adds a very interesting other dynamic to this whole thing. No, no question. I think Carl wants to tell people, hey, listen, I haven't left. I, I still got a little left on the fastball here, and it's October. <laughs> and I think he still wants to show people that he's throwing heat. And that's, it is classic Carl Icahn. And he's getting into a space that is, by the way, probably in play. So, you know, as much as sometimes some of the things don't appear to make a lot of sense, I think this one actually does. So good for Carl. We should get him back on the show. I mean, 
We did a skit, by the way, years ago where we auctioned off a Carl Icahn painting. Maybe we could pull that out of the archives, Mel. Oh, wow. I think that's like on on Maybe another not. format, like Maybe Betamax not. or something. It's so old. Um, anyway, let's get from one activist to the next. Here's a Macy's getting a pop. Sources telling CNBC Jana Partners has taken a stake in the department store chain. The activist is urging Macy's to spin off its e-commerce unit. Jana says a standalone business could be worth $7 billion, which is roughly Macy's current market cap. Shares of Macy's rallying 3%, almost 3% today. The stock has now doubled on the year. We heard this before, Tim. Um, this is confirmation of what had been reported yeah. about what Jana was interested in doing, and yet the stock moves higher once again. Um, would you like to see this happen? Look, I, I, I like an activist dynamic. I like a 15.5% short interest and what that could scare the you-know-what out of those folks. So, so it, look, it's, it's moving the stock around, but this is a company that will, yes, so have you know 43% digital penetration by 2023. Their store footprint has been shrinking every year and certainly uh, accelerated by COVID. will be 500 stores from 650 uh, two years ago. They're free cash flow positive. They're going to have a billion in cash. And they have... Two billion in unencumbered real estate. I mean, this stock stands on its own. It's six and a half times 2022 uh, EPS. It's too cheap. Uh, the balance sheet has survived, uh, and they've remade the business model. So I think you can just be a shareholder without all this. But again, 15% short interest. Take a look at that, and and look at the impetus for a lot of people just to come in and cover. The short interest uh, aspect to it is also an interesting dynamic to the story, Dan. Yeah, it's, it is. I mean, the stock's had a big run, and we've had no shortage of retail people who've just told us that the department stores are dead as a doornail. So the strategy of spinning out just the e-commerce business seems odd to me. You know, the last time, uh, you know, you had activists involved, that real estate was valued at probably equal to its market cap. That was the big thing. I think that was maybe five or six years ago, if I recall um, correctly. So I don't love the idea of taking an old line department store and, and cleaving off the one thing that's actually saved them. The brand is obviously worth something here, um, but you know it's had a big run. I don't have a position. I, I wouldn't buy it. Um, I'm not telling you if I if I owned it that I'd sell it because, to Tim's point, the activist dynamic is a good thing in a story like this. They want to be constructive. Yeah, we are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. The woman with a front row seat to the last financial crisis says there could be another one brewing. Former FDIC chair Sheila Bear joins us next to break down what's keeping her up at night. Plus, another black eye for Boeing. New problems surfacing with the 787 Dreamliner plane. How our traders are navigating this turbulent trade. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Welcome back to Fast Money. A big day for banks. Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, Citigroup, Wells Fargo delivering better than expected third quarter profits. B of A stock, the big winner, up more than 4%, while Wells Fargo closed lower. So, Karen, um, which one stood out to you the most? Which report? 
Bank of America, I mean, the net interest margin there was the best bunch. They also had a good expense control. That efficiency ratio came down. So when you start to have that higher NIM and then uh, better expense control, sorry about that, um, higher NIM and better expense control, then you get good earnings. So that was impressive. And I, I, I mean, of the bunch, that was the best. A little embarrassing maybe for J.P. Morgan, not quite seeing as good growth as some others. So um, I'm sure that'll... That'll weigh on Jamie. Um, but it was impressive. So I, I think, you know, the stock had a really nice day. It deserved to have a nice day. It sold off a bit going into this. Um, that was the most interesting of the bunch. And Morgan Stanley, different kind of animal, um, you know, banking revenue off the charts. And then the asset management business, with that actually was a little bit weaker. But I think that deserves a higher multiple. Mm -hmm. Dan? Yeah, I think Karen's correct. I mean, the Morgan Stanley thing is interesting. Um, you saw, uh, you know, Goldman Sachs is going to be tomorrow morning. I guess I'd be more focused on them. I mean, we were very focused on net interest margins uh, because of the rate move this quarter. If we were to see that moderate, you're going to go back to those other businesses and focus on them um, a bit more. So I'm, I'm kind of more in that camp, less in the money center banks at this point. Um, you know, on Closing Bell Guy, which I know you watch very, very closely and religiously. <laughs> uh, religiously. Mike religiously. Mike Santilli was having a very interesting conversation about the, uh, about the valuation of Morgan Stanley versus the valuation of BlackRock. And while the two can't be compared entirely because their businesses are different, uh, the valuation of Morgan Stanley is considerably lower, even though it does have that asset management component of the business. Should the valuation um, reflect more of the, asset, the strength in the asset management business like a BlackRock does? I think so. Yeah, I think so. And you go back. I have a memory like an elephant. I'm not really sure what that means, but I do recall it's got to be over a year or so ago. Dan Nathan pointed out that Morgan Stanley is probably the best-looking financial chart out there, and he's been right. And I think Morgan Stanley does deserve a premium valuation. By the way, a couple of years ago, I would not have said that, but they've morphed into something that I think a lot of people are aspiring towards. They have three very distinct business units, and I think the valuation should be higher. I think it's growing into it. I think the all-time high on Morgan Stanley was 105.95-ish. I think we trade through it, and I think the evaluation should and deservedly will grow. All right. Speaking of the banks, Kramer is sticking by one big name that reported results today. He says, be patient with this turnaround story. To find out which one, sign up for the CNBC Investment Club newsletter. All the details right there on your screen. Well, our next guest had a front row seat during the financial crisis, and she is worried a meltdown could happen again due to risks tied to Fed tapering and stimulus measures. Let's bring in Sheila Baer. She was FDIC chair from 2006 to 2011. Sheila, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, the, choosing the term financial crisis is really tricky because it all, it, it's like you get, you're shell-shocked and, and you think back to yeah. the great financial crisis. But you, you chose it very specifically, and I'm wondering what you see could be the scenario here. Well, I, I don't think it'll happen. I think it's avoidable. But, but I do think interest rates are going to go up. I, I think that, uh, you know, asset valuations are elevated pretty much across the board. As it, and a lot of that's driven by monetary policy. So as monetary policy becomes less accommodative, some of those valuations are going to start dropping. So I, I think you can do that on a slow, steady basis. But let's not forget what triggered the 2008-2009 financial crisis was when Fed just went a little bit too fast uh, on their interest rate uh, hikes. And so this is, this is very tricky. And the history of, of, of tightening is not always a positive one in terms of being able to exit these accommodative policies without a negative impact on the economy. So I do I think it's avoidable, but I think the Fed's got a very uh, significant challenge in front of them, uh, you know, starting with tightening with taper and then eventually uh, interest rate increases. 
Sheila, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us. Is there a part sure. of the economy it was easy to look at banks in the pre-crisis uh, right. lead up as taking excessive no. risk and the inability to value derivatives? Um, banks right. seemingly have very different balance sheets and business models. Where are you concerned right. in the private sector? Yeah. So I, they're, they're in better shape. Are they as good, as strong as they need to be? I don't know, but they're in much better shape. Uh, they have de-risk. A lot of the risk has flown, uh, has gone outside the banking sector. So I don't, there is another crisis. I don't know if it's necessarily going to be with the big banks, uh, but there's a whole financial ecosystem out there that's pretty highly leveraged. The corporate sector is very highly leveraged. A lot of reliance on short-term debt. You know, again, that's going to create stress for the weaker companies. They're going to have to keep refinancing and the rates are going to be going up. So I, I don't know if it's going to start with the banks. It would probably start outside the banks. but And I, I hope it doesn't happen at all again. I, but I think, you know, and I'm, I have not have been a longstanding critic of this highly accommodated monetary policy. But I tell you now, I think they need to go slow. Jay Powell suggested that they would, you know, end taper by mid next year. That that's pretty rapid. I would I would rethink that. <laughs> I think they need to do this. I think inflation's a real concern, but it needs to be very gradual because look, it's been a long time since interest rates have gone up, and uh, and we're just not quite sure what the outcome of all this is going to be. Sheila, it's Karen. Thanks so much for being on. Let me sure. ask something about. It sounded like you were you were concerned about banks being, um, you know, sort of in 94, there was that negative uh, duration. But now they're so asset sensitive, it would seem like that wouldn't be a risk. Are you more fearful of credit quality from uh, from corporates well, it, 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 becoming it, 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 underwater? Again, yes. I mean, it, again, I don't I don't think this is necessarily going to start with the banks. The banks are better capitalized. They have to delivered to some extent. I think it's going to happen. Yeah, but sure. Even if it, if it starts someplace else, it's going to cascade back and hit them. Corporate debt, a lot of it will be, you know, experienced in the financial markets, though. A lot of this, these assets are not held on bank balance sheets. So, again, I don't think crisis is necessarily going to destabilize the banking system. It may. We just don't know. But I think there is a real risk of financial turmoil on a lot of investors getting hurt. And if it, if it, you know, cascades into a, a, a negative economic situation, a downturn or recession, we could have a problem. And again, that's going to create, you know, uh, credit losses that will flow through back to the banking system. So I think all of this can be avoided, but the Fed just needs to go very, very slow. Sheila, I'm curious. It's been this a long time. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, curious to hear where you think this could start. And it sounds almost like you're alluding to the shadow banking system. And well, the entities yes. that have that have lent money to various entities um, that may not be as as credit worthy. And, and and how does that you know, if it's in the financial system, in the banking system, there are bailout mechanisms, which we've seen in the past. But if it happens right. in the shadow banking system, we've never crossed that bridge before. No, no, we haven't. Uh, and uh, it, it, there will be hopefully we will not have to, because I think longer term, that's even more destabilizing. To the extent that some of these non-bank players, uh, you know, well, prime example, many funds, asset managers, they've already gotten, you know, it's targeted bailouts already. So I think there is a, a bailout kind of thinking is already set in uh, to a lot of these non-bank sectors uh, that, that, that incentivizes risk taking. So and I do worry about the corporate sector a lot. And again, that could certainly have a, a very, very negative impact on corporate debt markets. And if that 
cascades into the real economy, then it's going to flow back onto bank balance sheets. Uh, look, I, I think another possible scenario is not crises, but stagflation. I think there's, you know, we've got constrained supply. We've got a huge amount of monetary and fiscal stimulus still flowing into the economy. Could be a lot more coming out of Washington. If, if supply is constraining economic growth and we keep pouring fuel onto the demand side, you're going to end up with stagflation, which could be another very ugly scenario for working families. It might not hit the, the bank so much or the financial market so much, but it could have a real devastating impact on working families and lower income workers who are just finally now seeing some real wage growth. So that is another uh, area that's very high on my worry list. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, Sheila, but it sure. sounds like you think that the potential outcomes, um, that's a higher risk for negative outcomes coming out of easy monetary policy than positive outcomes. I, I, I think they're, they're, I think as evaluations are going to adjust, I think you know borrowing is going to become more expensive to some extent. Long term, that will be a good thing. But yeah, short term, it's going to be a very difficult transition to navigate. And, uh, you know, best of luck. They've got a lot of talented people uh, at the Fed. So, uh, and I know, you know, they're, they're thinking about this morning, noon, and night, but they really need to be very careful and very gradual in how they, they start to taper and eventually raise rates. Sheila, great to see you again. Thank you. Sure. Nice to see you. Okay. Sheila Bear. It's never good when you say best of luck. Uh, Dan, what do you think of all this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think she brings up a lot of good points. If you look back at the history of our banking sector, they find every opportunity to kind of screw things up um, right when they think they got it here. You know what I mean? And I'll just say this about, you know, I, I think she's right about the concern about stagflation. Um, we just were talking about um, how interest rate sensitive some of these money center banks and reliant on lending. The investment banks, again, back to Morgan and Goldman. I mean, like, I think the trends that are in place, I mean, we really thought their business was going to fall off a cliff in 2020 and look at the results they've had into 2021 and they're supposed to be great in 2022. So that's where I'd focus. And the other one we haven't been talking about um, is MasterCard and Visa. Obviously not banks here, but those stocks are off maybe 13, 14 percent from their recent highs. They really haven't budged at all and expected in 2022 at least 20 percent earnings and sales growth. I know that they're expensive about 30 times. Those also look pretty interesting to me. Guy, quick thoughts. I mean, Sheila wasn't exactly a very uplifting for Thursday afternoon, but um, what do you think? No, and she's not one for hyperbole. So when she says things like that, you absolutely have to listen. But one thing she said, you know, it's going to be hard to navigate. And, and I, I agree with her there. But I'll, let me submit this and then I'll let you go. It's extraordinarily hard to navigate if they look at it through the lens of the market. If the market is their concern, then it's almost impossible to navigate. If they take the market out of their purview and out of their sights, I think it's actually rather easy to navigate and just let the market do what it wants to do. But unfortunately, I think they become enslaved to the broader market. All right. Coming up, another headwind for Boeing after the company finds a new defect in its Dreamliner plane. The details next, plus the big trade at the corner of Happy and Healthy. We're breaking down the big move in Walgreens today. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Boeing under pressure today after the company discovered a new defect for its Dreamliner plane. Let's get to Phil LeBeau with the details. Phil. 
Melissa, this was a flaw that was actually pointed out by a Boeing supplier as they do an audit of the entire system when it comes to manufacturing the 787 Dreamliner. Here's exactly what the company announced today. There are detect could be defective titanium brackets on some of the 787 Dreamliners built since 2018. The important thing to keep in mind here, this is not a flight safety issue. We're talking about brackets that secure the floor to the fuselage certainly important. You want to have it checked, but it's not something that is going to force Dreamliners to be pulled out of the flight schedules. But it does highlight some of the ongoing problems when it comes to the 787 Dreamliner. Remember, deliveries were halted, and they have been halted since May. The final inspection process, that has not yet been approved by the FAA. In fact, they're going back and forth on a regular basis as part of the FAA production review. Until the FAA signs off on it, they're not going to deliver Dreamliners. Boeing is hoping that might happen later this year. But folks, we've been hearing that for some time, that they believe that they're close to getting this approved by the FAA. Until that happens, we don't see Dreamliner deliveries. And as you take a look at shares of Boeing in the last six months, Look, they've traded essentially sideways down, in fact, a little bit over the last six months. They've had only one cancellation of a 787 in the last couple of months. They had one last month. But relative to the S&P 500, Boeing really hasn't done anything. Remember, it has an inventory of approximately 100 Dreamliners. They've already said that they expect to deliver fewer than half of those this year. But if they don't get this inspection process approved by the FAA... You have to wonder how many they'll deliver this year. And why is this important, Melissa? As you see, perhaps the end of COVID-19, let's just say maybe over the next year, year and a half worldwide, and you see more international travel and you see more airlines wanting a long-haul airplane, they're going to want their Dreamliners. It's been okay to a certain extent not to be able to deliver $25 billion worth of Dreamliners over the last seven, eight months. That's got to start to change relatively quickly, and that's why you see pressure on shares of Boeing as people say, what else is going on with this plane? Yeah. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau. Dan, you flagged this chart. It was a pretty big underperformer in today's session relative to the broader markets. Yeah, I mean, there's been fits and starts, right? And it's just a series of lower highs here. And I just say that we were talking about Virgin Galactic delaying their commercial flights. I mean, this company over the last few years is really – um, you know, they have quality assurance problems. It's just that simple. And I know Tim probably feels differently as a shareholder, but they've had two planes that went to the ground because of their negligence and 350 people died. So I think that the FAA, they should, t- they should be as slow as possible with this company right now. Tim? I think the story over the last couple of days is about deliveries. I think they, you know, they have fewer deliveries. The 787 is is certainly a profit center, less free cash flow. That's the disappointment. 375 max is still in inventory. Uh, expectation that they won't get below say 320 as we get into next year. That that's really the story of Boeing here, and and the chart is representative of that. Uh, but look, the overall airline industry, the correlation here for Boeing, um, as we see airlines pick up, we're going to see Boeing's chart get better. Coming up, a shot in the arm. Shares of Walgreens rallying today on the back of earnings. We'll tell you how our traders are playing this big move. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Take a look at Walgreens surging more than 7% after the company posted a big beat before the bell. The stock came under pressure early in the trading session, but staged a big reversal as the company kicked off its investor day. Walgreens also upping its stake in primary care company Village MD with a new $5.2 billion investment, doubling its stake essentially. Karen, um, what do you make of this big move in, in Roz Brewer, CEO? 
So uh, I'm long the stock was long going in. I think there's some concern about the Village MD uh, acquisition, but you know she has a vision for an entire community where those are very captive customers and sort of creating this um, you know community of of, CV, of Walgreens customers that will be sort of a recurring a revenue stream. So they talked about. 4% growth in earnings over the next few years, weighted out toward the further years, a little higher growth there, not growth next year. The stock at a 10 PE wasn't reflecting an expectation of growth. So that's what sort of turned it around. I think she deserves the benefit of the doubt. I'm long. I think this, uh, I think flu shots and COVID uh, booster shots will probably help even if cold and flu season isn't as good. And I'm definitely willing to give her the benefit of the doubt. She has a vision. I mean, you like Moderna on boosters. You might like WBA on boosters, Guy. I like Roz, and I'll tell you why. I mean, she has a vision, but you know what? She's seen this before. She was the CEO of Sam's Club, the COO of Starbucks. She comes from Walmart as well. I mean, you're betting on her, and in a 10 times forward valuation, I think it's worth that bet. I mean, listen, should it be trading at a market multiple? No, but you put a 15 multiple on it, and you have a significant upside in the stock. So, yeah, I think you can buy WBA here. Coming up, a semi-squeeze. Intel surging higher in today's session, but that didn't stop options traders from betting on a chip crunch. The trade is next. We're live at the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. Back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. One big semiconductor name getting battered in the options market today. Even as the stock rallied, Mike Coe joins us now to break down the action. Mike. Yeah, so we're taking a look at Intel, which is always one of the busier uh, names that we see in this space. It traded more than two times its average daily put volume, puts outpacing calls, the most active options. With the January 50 strike puts, we saw over 22,000 of those trading for about $1.80, making it one of the most busy chip options we saw today. Obviously, buyers of those puts betting, despite the rally, that Intel could go a little lower. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, we've got your final trades. Final trade time, Tim. Karen's Facebook, after a 17% pullback, has bounced nicely off that 200. Best mega cap tech chart out there. Karen. Yes, I'm betting with Roz Brewer and uh, Walgreens Boots. I like it a lot. Dan Nathan. Yeah, boosters. Pfizer, round trip that entire move from the breakout in July back here at 41. I like it here. Guy Dami. Giants Dodgers tonight, Mel. Pick, please, quickly. Giants. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Also said PayPal last night reports next week. I think it's November 1st, regardless. PayPal. Thanks for watching Fast. See you tomorrow at 5. Mad Money with Jim Kramer starts right now. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details.